Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Greetings and welcome to another episode of Canadian History X. If you like, you can support the podcast for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. You can also donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking donate, or you can go to buymeacupofcoffee slash CraigU. All of these links are also in my show notes. And for people who donate, I have various levels of benefits. For $5, you get a thank you at the start of the next episode of Canadian History X, Canada's Great War, and from John to Justin, and on social media. For $10, you get everything from the $5, plus this episode is sponsored by, with your name at the start. Also, I'll state it's sponsored by you on social media. For $20, everything from the $5 and $10, plus a second episode sponsored by you, and promotion of something you're working on. And for $50, everything from the $5, $10, and $20 plus, you get to choose a topic for me to cover on Canadian History X. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D. And I'm on Instagram and TikTok where I put up daily videos about Canada's history. Just go to my username, Bairdo37. And you can find weekly videos on Canada's history on my YouTube channel. Just go to youtube.com slash c slash Canadian History X. If you want to find transcripts of every episode I've ever done, you can go to my website, CanadaEHX.com. And there's over 700 posts on Canada's history there. The Trans-Canada Pipeline was not only an engineering feat that would change the economies of Alberta and Saskatchewan, but would also fundamentally alter Canadian politics in the 1950s and into the 1960s. By the 1950s, the economies of Alberta and Saskatchewan were booming due to the oil and gas industry gaining new life. Out east, energy shortages were becoming problematic as the population began to boom in the post-war era. It was in this situation that the Trans-Canada Pipeline would come to fruition. Two companies put their name forward to moving gas from west to east. The Canadian Delhi Oil Company, which proposed moving the gas to the eastern Canadian cities through an all-Canadian route, and Western Pipelines, which planned to stop the line at Winnipeg and then branch it south to sell to the United States. In 1954, C.D. Howe, a Liberal Member of Parliament, forced the two companies to merge, and the all-Canadian route was chosen over the cheaper American route. For Howe, he felt the Trans-Canada Pipeline rivaled the Canadian Pacific Railway project of the 1880s in its importance to the country. The management committee was set up, with initially Clint Murchison serving as the president of the company. Murchison was a Texas oil man who had been in the oil industry since he had served in the First World War. He had formed the Delhi Oil Corporation in 1945 and had quite the life. For one, he was one individual said to be involved in the Kennedy assassination after he had a meeting with Lyndon Johnson, J. Edgar Hoover, and Richard Nixon at a party at his home the night before Kennedy visited Dallas. After the party, he was rumored to have said, quote, after tomorrow, those Kennedys will never embarrass me again. That is no threat, that is a promise. End quote. 
Of course, this was later debunked, but it's still an interesting story. The all-Canadian pipeline solution would fix problems that were seen in interprovincial lines that had been built, and it would quiet the progressive conservative opposition in Parliament who wanted Canadian centres to have preference over American customers, and that a main pipeline carrying Canadian oil should be laid in Canadian soil. Trans-Canada Pipelines Limited was incorporated to begin the process of constructing a natural gas pipeline, with financing being split 50-50 between American and Canadian interests. By constructing the line through Canada, national sentiments were accommodated, which proved to be a problem for the Liberal government. The regulatory process for the Trans-Canada Pipeline would prove to be a difficult one as well. Proposals were rejected twice before Alberta granted permission to export gas from the province. The province had wanted to ensure the gas reserves would be sufficient for its 30-year needs, with the intent of only allowing exports in excess of those needs. For Ontario, the pipeline was needed not only because of a shortage of gas coming into the province, but because it was believed that there would be a reduction in the price of gas in places like Toronto by as much as 50%. Howe would predict that the pipeline would reach Winnipeg by 1955, but many questioned whether or not the pipeline would be made and there were rumours flying in 1954 that TransCanada Pipeline had approached the government for assistance in financing the program. Howe would say, quote, I'm not saying they may not ask for something before we're through. If they do, we will look at it. End quote. British Columbia would also express anger towards the pipeline, which completely ignored the province. The Quinell Caribou Observer on September 29, 1955, wrote, quote, All attention in the national capital seems to be focused on the Trans-Canada Pipeline, which will move gas east to the Ontario and Quebec markets. Though BC is as much a part of the Dominion as the other provinces, Ottawa seems quite content to let the western province shift for itself while in talks of subsidizing the eastern line. Things would slow down throughout 1955 as the government assessed the pipeline project. At some points, it felt as if it was not going to happen, something that worried Alberta. The Alberta government was concerned about the potential revenue loss and was doing whatever it could to keep the project moving, including meeting with the Trans-Canada Pipeline Company, natural gas producers, and others. The Progressive Conservatives also continued to criticize the Liberals over how they were moving with the pipeline. Carl Nickel, an MP out of Calgary, was angry towards the government over the stalled progress on the pipeline. What was supposed to have been delivering gas by 1955 was not even started. He would state the matter was, quote, neither fish nor fowl, but a stalemate. It does eastern Canada no good, and western Canada a great deal of harm, end quote. Prime Minister Louis St. Laurent was hopeful by mid-1955 that the pipeline was still possible. Negotiations between Trans-Canada pipelines and government agencies continued, but throughout the year very little progress was made. One reason for the delay was that the Ontario government did not want to tax its citizens $35 million to build the pipeline through the sparse terrain of northern Ontario. The fate of the pipeline would be put in jeopardy in early 1956 when demands were made before the Federal Power Commission of the United States for the immediate dismissal of the Trans-Canada Pipeline proposal with the Tennessee Natural Gas Company to import natural gas from Canada out of Manitoba. The financing of the pipeline was heavily connected to the approval of the Federal Power Commission for the Tennessee proposal. Charles V. Shannon stated he would oppose the bill, stating, quote, we are prepared to spend two or three years on testimony on the proposals if we're not granted immediate dismissal. End quote. 
At the same time, the Canadian government set May 1st as the deadline to prove that TransCanada could finance the line. Howe, who had originally said the pipeline would be done by 1955, now revised that to 1958. He would say, quote, The obstacles that may be encountered are formidable, but have been carefully assessed. I am satisfied that they can be overcome. I believe the TransCanada pipeline project is moving from controversy into reality. End quote. At this time, pipe was ordered for the western section of the line. Two private companies also bought private capital in TransCanada pipelines. The Hudson's Bay Oil and Gas Company and the Canadian Gulf Oil Company both bought shares, while Canadian Delhi Oil and Western Pipelines cut their shares of the stocks from 30% to 24.5%. Eventually, the agreement was reached, but it was not something the official opposition was happy about. For one thing, the Canadian taxpayers would be paying $130 million to build through Northern Ontario. The Tennessee Gas Transmission Company agreed to also supply 152 million cubic feet a day of Canadian gas to three American iron and steel companies at a price below what Canadian industries would be required to pay. The government also gave a loan of $72 million to help with the construction between Alberta and Winnipeg, which was to be paid at a later date. The prevalence of American companies in the project was seen as a threat to Canadian sovereignty by some. Toronto MP George Hees stated that the financing of the pipeline was simply a backdoor substitute to have the federal government guarantee the pipeline company's bonds. He would add, quote, The plan is a strange mixture of government and private enterprise, in which the investment of public funds will enable a corporation, dominated by American interests, to obtain the predominant financial equity in the line and control its operation, end quote. John Diefenbaker, who at the time was an MP out of Prince Albert, but would soon be the leader of the Progressive Conservatives, was highly critical of the plan. He would state, quote, We will take a stand against the increasing domination of our industry and resources by another power. This is not contributing to the building of Canada. End quote. It would turn out that the Ontario government had negotiated privately in November 1955 to take on the construction of the pipeline, but this was turned down by the government and that would lead the Progressive Conservatives in Parliament to accuse C.D. Howe, who was the Trade Minister, of blocking private enterprise from a chance to build the pipeline. There is also the worry of American companies in Canada, because the number of American-controlled companies in Canada had grown from 1,985 in 1945 to 3,400 in 1956. As well, resources such as iron and gold were being shipped out in increasing numbers, from 4 million tons in 1955 to 10 million tons in 1956. Diefenbaker would say, quote, You cannot buy shares in the Canadian General Motors, but must buy shares in the United States General Motors. We are not opposed to American capital, and we will take it where it is needed, but we want it invested in Canada to ensure jobs for Canadians. End quote. Beginning on May 8, 1956, the debate over the finances of the Trans-Canada Pipeline began, and had to be concluded by June 6 of that year. The opposition knew that in order to get the financing set for the pipeline construction that would begin on July 1, 1956, the debate had to be concluded and parliamentary approval given by that date. The debate would focus on allowing a consortium owned by American interests with government loans to cover the extra costs of building through Canada. The issue of allowing American businessmen in the construction process was also debated, as well whether or not it was surrendering to American control. 
H.H. Stevens, the MP for Penticton, stated of Howe that he was following in the path of William Lyne Mackenzie King, who, he stated, kicked Great Britain in the face. He would say that Howe was doing the same by giving interest to the United States, stating, quote, Now Mr. Howe is doing the same thing, end quote. The official opposition want to filibuster the debate past the deadline so that an all-new Canadian consortium or Crown Corporation could be put together. CCF leader Coldwell would state that the government would have no limit on the depths it would stoop to yield to the wishes of the Trans-Canada Pipeline Company. He would state, quote, What kind of private enterprise is this? Private enterprise subsidized by the public private enterprise with the public taking the risk and rich United States corporations taking the profits. This is not private enterprise at all. It is purely and simply a raid on the public treasury, end quote. At each stage of the bill, the Liberals attempted to force closure on the debate so that the final vote could be forced. Closure had been used seven times since it was created in 1913, with the last time in 1932. This was the first time that a minister attempted to give the motion of closure before a single opposition member had a chance to speak. The efforts to invoke closure gave the pipeline the name of the Shotgun Sanctioned Pipeline. Opposition leader George Drew would call the fight of the opposition a crusade for democracy against dictatorships. He would say, quote, The opposition is the most important part of Parliament. It is what differentiates our government from a dictatorship. The existence of the opposition is the hallmark of democracy. This now has become a crusade for democracy. The rights of the Canadian people are being challenged today by the government, which has been long in power and has grown contemptuous of the rights of the representatives who have been sent to Ottawa by the people. End quote. The day before the deadline, René Boudoir, the Speaker of the House and a Liberal, allowed the opposition to debate a procedural matter, and he ruled at the end of the day that the issue would be debated the following day, allowing opposition parties to debate past the deadline. In the next day's session, though, Boudoir announced that his ruling was a mistake and that all events after 2.15pm from that day should be ignored, and that the debate would recommence on the pipeline. Opposition parties strongly objected to this, and MPs ran into the centre aisle as chaos descended in the House of Commons. Major Caldwell, the leader of the CCF, even ran towards the Speaker of the House, shaking his fist. Lorne McDougall, a Liberal MP, would suffer a heart attack while leaving the House of Commons after this. The stress of the issue was cited as a cause of the heart attack. McDougall had been a doctor of dental surgery who gave up his practice due to injuries he sustained during the war. He had actually helped Speaker Boudoir only a week earlier when the Speaker became weak and McDougall ran forward in the House of Commons with his heart pills to help him. His wife was also in the gallery but did not see her husband collapse. McDougall had been a member of the House of Commons since 1949. St. Laurent would say as his voice broke that McDougall was, quote, our esteemed and beloved colleague, end quote. Diefenbaker, who knew McDougall during his time together in the 196th Battalion in the First World War, stated, quote, I knew him through those years, end quote. Diefenbaker was unable to continue with speaking of his friend. Angus McInnes, a member of the CCF, would say, quote, We were political opponents, but the very best of friends since that time up to now. The strains and tensions of the past weeks have certainly taken a terrific toll. We are very, very sorry, end quote. The entire debate was taxing on members of the House of Commons over the previous three weeks. Howard Green, a progressive conservative MP, spent several days in the hospital due to nervous exhaustion. 
Dr. Owen Trainer, another progressive conservative MP, suffered a mild recurrence of a heart problem and had to go to the hospital. J.M. McDonnell, another progressive conservative MP, suffered a severe stomach disorder and had to spend several days in the hospital. The opposition would claim that Prime Minister Louis St. Laurent and C.D. Howe had pressured the Speaker to change his mind. But, with the reversal of the decision by the Speaker, Howe and St. Laurent pushed the loan guarantee legislation through by the deadline. Drew would put forward a censure motion against Speaker Boudoir for allegedly deviating from parliamentary procedure during the pipeline debate. Drew would say, quote, The government has no mandate to use Canadian taxpayers' money in this way, end quote. He would add in regards to the Speaker that he was a victim and casualty of the pipeline debate due to the Prime Minister putting him in that position. He would say, quote, Most of us have little but sorrow in our hearts for the Speaker, who has been the victim of the government action, end quote. Was the toughest fight in your political career? Oh, by far, yes, by far. I feel now that the pipeline bill has gone through the House of Commons. Well, it's a great relief. We've had three weeks of debate. The fact is, it's not the members of Parliament whose rights have been denied, it's the people of Canada, and uh, there's been no discussion allowed. The bill was able to pass through the Senate, with its third reading passing on a vote of 80 to 6. The bill was then given royal assent in the Senate by Chief Justice Patrick Kerwin, who was the acting Governor-General. Only one member of the Progressive Conservatives attended the signing, John Diefenbaker. The CCF staged a complete boycott of the signing in the Senate. Senator David Kroll would state of the bill and the fallout of it, quote, When the pipeline is built, it will be buried in the ground. But what will be left above ground is a little ugly and somewhat frightening. Careers have been shattered. Reputations have been tarnished. Democracy has been insulted and belittled. I don't approve of hooliganism in the Montreal Forum. I like it even less when it occurs. Well, you know where I mean. End quote. After the contentious debate, Saint Laurent asked for a truce to the party warfare that had erupted in the House of Commons. On June 8th, the agreement was ready to be signed, but that was a headache unto itself. Saint Laurent's cabinet met in his office to go over the wording of the document. Then lawyers looked at the technical issues of it. At this point, cabinet gave its okay and then Saint Laurent was notified that the TransCanada signers would only sign it in their office. As a result, everyone had to hurry over to their offices with the documents to get the documents signed. Ironically, the deadline was not important as originally thought, as the factories that would construct the pipe went on strike, delaying construction for quite some time. Construction would finally begin on the pipeline with workers installing 3,500 kilometers of pipe from the Alberta-Saskatchewan border to Toronto and Montreal. Each day, workers were able to finish 10 kilometers of the pipeline through the prairies as they made quick progress. On September 17, 1957, a large celebration was held as the gas was turned on in Regina with the flick of the switch by Mayor T.H. Coburn at 9.45 p.m. in front of 1,500 people. Regina was the first customer of the TransCanada Pipeline Company, and Chairman N.E. Tanner would say, quote, We're happy to say that TransCanada Pipelines is now a reality, something many of you people and many others besides thought would never be, end quote. Within a few months, the pipeline had reached Winnipeg and was delivering gas service. By the end of the year, the line had reached Thunder Bay. Building through the Canadian Shield was extremely difficult, with constant blasting of the hard rock of the shield becoming common. In one 1,000-foot stretch, crews had to drill 2.4-meter holes into the rock, three abreast, at 56-centimeter intervals to blow up the rock. 
On October 10, 1958, the final weld of the line was complete and gas arrived in North Bay, Ontario. On October 27, 1958, gas from Alberta reached Toronto. One day later, it reached Montreal. The final price tag came in at roughly $245 million to build the pipeline. Today, with inflation, that price tag would be $2.4 billion. As soon as gas started to reach Toronto, the Board and Royal Commission on Energy released its report that showed top officials of TransCanada pipelines had actually received huge profits on an enterprise financed partly by public funds. Chairman Nathan Tainer had bought 55,000 common shares, while others had bought between 5,000 and 50,000 shares at $8 a share. Later, the stock went up to $10. This increase in share price would net Tanner $1.457 million in stock value. For two decades, the TransCanada pipeline would be the longest in the world before it was finally exceeded by a Soviet pipeline in the 1980s that ran from Siberia to Western Europe. When the 1957 election came along, the Progressive Conservatives and John Diefenbaker cited the pipeline debate as evidence that the Liberals had become arrogant over the two decades in power. In the election, the Progressive Conservatives ended 22 years of Liberal rule over Canada with a minority government. One year later, Diefenbaker won the largest majority in Canadian history. Uh, my fellow Canadians, uh, this is a moment of deep dedication rather than of elation. And my first words must be of gratitude and appreciation for the wonderful support that was given today to conservative candidates in every part of our country. As far as I'm concerned, a simple thank you is about all I can say at this time coupled with my thanks to the many thousands of Canadians who, without regard to party consideration, have joined with us today because of the fact that they have, in common with us, an abiding belief in the preservation of the parliamentary system. St. Laurent would retire from politics after the election loss in 1957, while Boudreau's reputation was in tatters over the matter. He would not run for re-election in 1958, ending his 13 years in the House of Commons. He would spend the rest of his life working from job to job, eventually working as a bartender at a tavern in Arizona. He would die in 1970, penniless and alone in the back of a Montreal taxi from a heart attack. Howe would lose his seat in the 1957 election after serving in his writing since 1935, and he would be dead only three years later. I hope you enjoyed that episode and my look at the TransCanada Pipeline. If you did, please leave a rating and review. Next week, we're looking at Elijah Harper. If you like, you can email me at craig at canadaehx.com. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is Craig Baird, C-R-A-I-G-B-A-I-R-D, and I'm on Instagram at Bairdo37. As well, again, if you want to support the podcast, you can for as little as $3 a month. Just go to patreon.com slash canadaehx. And you can donate to the podcast by going to CanadaEHX.com and clicking Donate. I'd also like to thank all of my wonderful patrons, and I apologize if I get any names incorrect. Wendy Mills, Keelan Pregnitz, Michael Matthews, Joanna Parker, Jeff Dahl, Vobs, Robert Page, Richard D., Colin Johnson, Jeff Hershey, 
Kyle Murray, Steve Pakin, Matthew Gartho, Lionel Romaine, Dr. Bob Turner, an anonymous patron that I truly do appreciate, Randy Hayden, Doug Campbell, Reg W., Deborah Carlson, Francis Helbling, Nick Zinri, Shannon Marshall, Clinton Martinez, Dimitri Chauve, Aaron O'Hara Myers, Robert Dunseith, Todd Casey, Catherine Roy, Luke S., J.P. Bear, Jason Hall, Phil Maynard, and Iris Gray. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, Ottawa Citizen, McLean's, Calgary Herald, CBC, Wikipedia, National Post, Regina Leader Post, Quinnell Caribou Observer, Montreal Gazette, Edmonton Journal, Windsor Star, Victoria Times Columbus, Montreal Star, Windsor Star, and the North Bay Nugget. Thanks, and we'll see you again next time.